You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Are there parts of the Bible that you find sometimes boring? I think we're hesitant to admit it. It sounds so sacrilegious. But if we were to be candid in our private moments, I think most of us would admit that we find certain parts of the Bible boring at times. That we just as soon skip over those passages or at least merely skim through them. I remember not too long ago in my personal devotional time, I was reading through the book of Ezekiel. And when I got to chapters 40, 41, 42, 43, there's this long stretch where Ezekiel describes the measurements of the new temple. And... Um, you know, you're reading this many cubits by this many cubits, and um, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, can I just kind of skim, you know? Can I just kind of breeze through this? I was struggling finding benefit from that passage. Uh, by the way, in my accountability with my fellow pastor, Rod, uh, he helped me immensely in seeing the value of that part of Ezekiel. And if you're curious, catch me afterwards. <laughs> I've talked to people who struggle with passages like the genealogies. When they hit those lists of names, they just as soon skip it or skim it. And yet we know, we know that every part of the Bible is there for a reason. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Every part. Every part of the Bible is God's word, and every part has a purpose. Yes, even the genealogies. <laughs> I remember one time hearing a story about a man who was converted, hearing the preacher read through a list of genealogies. And you might scratch your head, and I might scratch mine and say, how did that happen? How did it happen that a man was converted through the reading of the genealogies? Well, as the man recounts his testimony, as he heard the preacher reading that list, every entry ended with, so-and-so lived so many years, and he died. And he died. And he died. And the Holy Spirit convicted that man of his own mortality. And he realized that he also would die, and he was not ready to meet God. And the Holy Spirit moved in his heart, and that man was converted that day, hearing the preacher read the genealogies. <laughs> Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that may have just been skipped over in your devotional reading, or maybe you just skimmed through it. Because it sounds like a list of names, and names of people, names of places. But I want to challenge you today, I want to encourage you today, that Nehemiah chapter 3 is part of God's powerful, purposeful word would you please join me in Nehemiah chapter 3. There is so much to learn from this chapter of the Bible. For our guests, uh, we're going through the book of Nehemiah this summer. And last week we looked at that powerful passage in Nehemiah chapter 2. And we framed last week's sermon around these three arrow prayers. Those of you that are here will remember them with me. Lord, move me. Lord, use me. Lord, strengthen me. 
I know some of you committed to praying that each day this past week. How's that going? How's it going as you've been praying, Lord, move me? Have you sensed the Spirit stirring you? Where you're more aware of needs in this world than you were before? Have you found yourself drawn in, Lord, use me? I want to live a life useful to the Master. Have you felt the need to pray, Lord, strengthen me? Keep praying those prayers, okay? I'll join you in that. Let's go back and read Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Two verses from last week's passage, and then we're going to jump into chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 and 18 read like this. Then I said to them, this would be Nehemiah, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. These people of Jerusalem had every reason to be discouraged. They had tried rebuilding things 13, 14 years before this, and they got stopped cold. The neighboring tribes and neighboring communities, the non-Jews, were very resistant to Jerusalem being rebuilt. And they got the emperor to back their attempts to stop the work, and the work did indeed stop. And so you can imagine for the people that have lived in Jerusalem for 13 or 14 years of broken down walls, it would look impossible. It would look impossible. But now God had sent this new leader, Nehemiah, who was a man of faith, a man of prayer. And as he related to them the good hand of God, the hand of God upon him for good, The people were encouraged with reminders of God's sovereign grace. They were reminded of the hope that they have in Him. And they said, let's get up and build. Let us arise and build. And so we're going to look now at how that happened in chapter 3. We're going to look at places. We're going to meet some people. And we're going to learn some things about ourselves. Because this chapter has so many names and places. I'm going to put a map up for you here, and you can look at that map if you care to. And uh, we're going to, these are the walls of Jeremiah, the walls of uh, Jerusalem and Nehemiah's day. And we're going to start up here on the north, kind of the northwest corner. And I'm going to invite you to go with me on a walk. It's actually not a short walk. It's about two miles around the city. It had been actually larger in the years before, but we're going to walk about two miles around this city starting here, going counterclockwise around the city. And as we walk around the city, you're going to notice as we make our journey counterclockwise that off to our right-hand side, we're going to see a lot of rubble in places more than others. For instance, here in the Kidron Valley, there's a lot of rubble. In fact, it's going to be so thick in places, it's going to be hard to get through. So we're going to see rubble off to our right-hand sides. And on the left-hand side, we're going to see the interior of the town. We're going to see people's houses, We're going to see businesses and, of course, the temple itself. And so you notice as we go around the city that uh, we're going to see all these things contained within an area of about 90 acres. We're going to meet people. We're going to see places. We're going to see about 10 different gates as we go along. 
as we go along, just if you're one of these people who likes to picture things, um, I wouldn't say that this wall was particularly aesthetically pleasing. It wasn't like these people were trying to build some beautiful-looking cathedral. They were trying to get this wall up. It was important that it have strength, and it was important that it got built with some speed because the neighboring people around them are trying to stop them. So two important things are strength, and in fact, they're going to build a wall that was in many places eight feet across, and it's going to be done quickly, as we'll see in the coming weeks. Let's start our survey. Let's start our hike, starting at the Sheep Gate. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. And by the way, as I read aloud, I appreciate your prayers for my uh, foggy memory of Hebrew pronunciations. <laughs> Because there are a lot of Hebrew names here. My 10-year-old grandson suggested something. He said, why don't we uh, just have an audio Bible played, Papa, and you can lip sync. <laughs> it was so tempting. <laughs> but I'll do my best. <clears throat> Nehemiah chapter 3. Let's read the first seven verses. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers and priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachor, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meheshabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, son of Baanah, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Joida, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, of Maranothite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Let's just stop there for a while. Let's look at this building project. We're starting up here at the Sheep Gate. Now, if you look at this map and you stay tuned here, why do you think they would call that the Sheep Gate? Any guesses? Yeah, it's the entrance to the temple. And so the sheep that were offered in sacrifice were brought through the Sheep Gate. So that's where they started. And I think as you see this, you can see that the priests were tapped by Nehemiah to build this part. This is where they worked. That would give them incentives. Uh, the Sheep Gate would have been like the front door to the city of Jerusalem. I would call it the front door to the city. Nehemiah mentions a couple of towers in that area. We don't know much about them, but it actually makes sense. If, if you like to study Bible backgrounds, um, there's valleys all around Jerusalem except for this north side. It's flatter up here on the north side. And so if the enemy was going to attack, it probably the attacks probably would have come from the north. And so when you read the Bible and it talks about people coming from the north, it could be that geographically they're coming from the east, but they had followed that fertile crescent up along the river, and then they'd come from the north to the south, and they would attack the city here on the north side. And so very strategically, some... Some towers mentioned there for defense. And uh, now we're going to turn the corner. We're going to turn the corner on the building project, and we're going to go down this west side of the city. And I'm going to read verses 8 through 13. Next to them, verse 8, next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhariah, goldsmiths repaired. 
Next to them, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, son of Harum, uh, whatever that is, you can name your kids that if you want to, uh, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, son of Hashabaniah, repaired. Melchijah, son of Harum, and Hashub, the, the son of Mahoth Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, son of Haloesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Hanun and inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They repaired it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of wall. That's 1,500 feet. Repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. So as we head on uh, the west side of the city, you can see that the Lord is using his people in powerful ways. By the way, it says that this one group built as far as the broad gate, um, or the broad wall. The broad wall actually goes back earlier to Hezekiah's day. Now, let me just show you a picture of this wall. You can actually see parts of it today. Um, if you go to Jerusalem, even today, the archaeologists have dug down. I've been here. And uh, you can see this broad wall. I mean, in places, like 20 feet across. And so they utilize some of the stone from this area, apparently, uh, to continue building their wall. But, um, you know, it amazes me that people doubt the historicity of the Bible. But, you know, if you go to places like this, you can, you can actually see it. I mean, it's there. You can go and see the uh, even parts of the walls from Nehemiah's day as well. Let's go back to the uh, map so you can follow along as I read verse 14. As we're now in the southern extremity of the city, Malkajah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Bacharim, repaired the Dungate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. So we're way down here to the south now to the Dungate. That doesn't sound too glorious, does it? <laughs> It was, it was called the Dung Gate for a reason, friends. <laughs> There's a valley down here, and this is kind of the garbage dump of the city. It was kind of the garbage dump of the city. So you have to admire the people that were willing to work on the Dung Gate. <laughs> and um, if you call the Sheep Gate the front door of the city, I would call the Dung Gate the back door. And as we head up the west side of the east, excuse me, the east side of the city now, it's going to get steeper. There's a pretty steep slope up this side of the city, and uh, we're going to see how that wall was built as well. Uh, if you look at the map, the original wall of the city was further down in the valley, but archaeologists have uncovered part of this, and they've determined that, that Nehemiah and his team built farther up on the slope where it's a bit flatter, so the city was actually narrower uh, than it had been like in David's day and Solomon's day. It actually goes back to about the shape it was when David first conquered the city of Jerusalem about 600 years before this. Let's walk up that east wall of the city, and I'm going to attempt to read the rest of this chapter, starting at verse 15. And Shalom, the son of Kohaze, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. By the way, there's a couple of gates here on the east side that let people access to the main water source. People didn't have their own wells. There wasn't water flowing into the homes. There was a spring out on the east side called the Gihon Spring. It's still there and uh, supplied water into a reservoir, and that reservoir was used for hundreds of years. You see it in the New Testament as the Pool of Siloam. Uh, where am I? Verse 15, partway through there. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the Pool of Shelah, 
of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, a different Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Beth-zur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehom, son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half, excuse me, ruler of half the district of Kela, repaired for his district. And after him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Henadad, ruler of the half district of Kela. Next to him, Ezar, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, son of Zebai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house to Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hazok, Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. And after him, Binui, son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress into the corner. Palal, son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as tall as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Barakai, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, the, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber and the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Let's meet some of these people. Who did we meet along the journey? Well, the first people we met were the chief priests, uh, the chief priests and some of the other priests rebuilding the wall. Uh, but even, did you notice someone who's left out? Even before we get to the high priest here, who isn't mentioned in this chapter? Did you notice a particular man not mentioned in this chapter? It's Nehemiah himself. Even though Nehemiah is recounting this recording of the building of the wall, he never mentions himself by name. And yet we know, just reading this chapter, that Nehemiah was very involved, wasn't he? He was very involved. Uh, you meet about 40 different people or people groups. There's about 41 or 42 different sections of the wall mentioned. So Nehemiah was obviously very involved, very organized, a uh, good delegator, and I would assume a good encourager. He must have written down the names of all these people and was recounting them in his memoir. So even though Nehemiah was very involved in this whole process, he doesn't draw attention to himself, does he? Instead, he keeps celebrating God's people, the chief priests, the other priests, building up there on the north side. Uh, even though they were priests, clergy, if you will, uh, they didn't consider themselves above manual labor. They just dived right in. In verse 8, we met some craftsmen, some goldsmiths, and some perfume makers. Now, 
I haven't studied perfume making or goldsmithing, but my hunch is these people didn't have calluses on their hands. These probably were not what we would consider blue-collar workers. They were craftsmen working with very fine crafts, and yet they didn't look at their soft hands and say, I don't know how to build a wall. They jumped right in and they did their part as well, didn't they? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the goldsmiths and uh, maybe the perfume makers were a little more well-to-do than some of the other people. And it's purely my guess, but I wouldn't be surprised if maybe they chipped in more with supplies, being a little more able to do so than some of the other people. In verses 9 and 12, we met some government officials. It's nice seeing them working on the wall, isn't it? And there's lots of common folk, aren't there? Lots of common folk just doing the hard work of building the wall. They were contributing their time, their energy. And um, as I think about this, as I try to picture in my own mind the building of this wall, I realize that the people of Jerusalem didn't hire some big construction company and said, you do the work for us. It's not wrong to do that necessarily, but this was a team effort. This was everybody getting involved, from perfume makers to people maybe that had a lot more experience. Uh, I personally think, I wonder how many times, having grown up in a blue-collar home, I wonder how many times blue-collar people looked over and saw that white-collar worker next to them and says, here, let, let me show you an easier way to do that. <laughs> Where they're helping each other. I can picture that happening, can't you? There were women involved. We noticed that in verse 12. I kind of paused there when I read that. That would have been highly unusual. This man apparently didn't have sons, and he had daughters. And his daughters very graciously got involved in helping rebuilding the wall as well. So it's good to see those ladies out there helping as well. That would have been countercultural, and Nehemiah makes a point of noting it. Hey, did you notice how Nehemiah had some people working close to their house, and yet other people came in, commuted in from outlying villages? It would have been encouraging. Don't you think, had you been a citizen of Jerusalem and and you're seeing someone coming to help with the wall. You're saying, uh, I don't think I'm acquainted with you. What's your name? Where are you from? Well, I'm from over at I'm down. I'm from down there at Jericho. And it would have been so encouraging to see these far-out relatives, fellow Jews, um, coming up to Jerusalem and donating their time and energy to help the citizens of Jerusalem in rebuilding the city of David. People from Tekoa, Gibeon, Mizpah, and other towns. For the people who lived in Jerusalem, Nehemiah often had them working close to their home. Did you notice that? It says opposite his house. Um, so you see these people working near their house. Think about that strategically. That would not only save time. They could quickly get to their work in the morning. Um, wouldn't take a long lunch break. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? It's not just an issue of efficiency. There's some wisdom. Nehemiah shows real wisdom as a leader in assigning portions of the wall next to people's houses. Now, our church has a lot of young families. And I think about this as an older guy. And I picture young dads, like some of you men, building your portion of the wall. And as you're building your portion of the wall over your shoulder, you can hear your wife talking to the kids. Or maybe you can hear the kids talking to mom. And you're building the portion of the wall next to your house. Can you see yourself, men, praying as you build the wall? Lord, give me strength. Strengthen me. Help me build this portion of the wall strong because my family needs your protection. And you can see that incentive of people wanting to do a good job. I should just pause and point out that not everybody's named in this project. Even though we have about 40 names, I doubt 40 people were the only people in building this wall. 
it probably was heads of households. So the patriarch of the family would be named, but whole families would get involved. And I can imagine that uh, there would be people involved in ways other than laying stone. While some of the men are out there laying stone, there would be other people going down into the gullies around the city looking for stones that can be reused. You know, way back in Nebuchadnezzar's day, way back when, you know, the walls were broken down. And those stones would have just rolled down into the valley. And you can see some strapping strong young men going down the valley saying, hey, this is a good one. And they somehow get it up the slope to the guys building the wall. So they got you another stone. I mean, you can see people doing things besides building the wall. Some people are hauling stone. Can't you picture a lot of the ladies fixing food for these guys and, and kids? Kids, can't you see the kids there in Jerusalem taking water to the workers and say, Uncle Ben and I, would you like some water? You know, and kids helping out. Some of the old folks that don't have the strength to lay stone anymore. Maybe some grandma saying, I'll watch the kids. You help any way you can. I'll keep an eye on the kids. I love doing that anyway. And maybe some of the oldest men, not physically able anymore, saying, we're, we're going to pray for you guys up on the wall. And I can picture old guys praying or maybe even singing some of the psalms to encourage the workers or shouting out words of encouragement. Friends, this was teamwork. This was teamwork. Everyone was involved in this crucial, important project. Well, almost everyone. Did you notice those people mentioned in verse 5? Were you following on that? In verse 5, it says, The Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Isn't that sad? That some of these so-called nobles from Tekoa said, I'm not getting dirt under my fingernails. Let the commoners do that. You know, and you can just hear the bad attitude. Friends, pride always curtails getting things done. It curtails the work of God. What did Jesus tell his followers? He said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so with you, Jesus said. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. It was Jesus who washed his disciples' feet. And I read about these citizens of Tekoa, even though their nobility, even though their nobles refused to get involved. If you read this section, in verse 5 and again in verse 27, you'll notice that this, the average Tekoa citizens chipped in and did more than their fair share because their uppity-up nobles wouldn't get dirty. They did overtime. And you have to take your hat off to people like that and say, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Instead of complaining or pointing the finger, you just jumped in and did more than your share. So what is there to learn from this often skimmed-over chapter of the Bible? What's in Nehemiah 3 for us? Well, let's remember some of the foundational things. One of the foundational lessons from Nehemiah 3 is this. Let's not miss the obvious lesson that God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. He promised way back in Moses' day, as well as through the prophets later, that if the people were taken off into exile for their disobedience, God would remember his promises 
Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to King David. And one day he would bring his people back, and God's doing that. This is all part of his plan of redemption. Nehemiah 3 is a page in the story of God's plan of redemption. I was reading something Tim Keller wrote about this. Let me read you what Tim Keller says. He's a pastor in Brooklyn. Nehemiah knows that if God is to continue to do his work as the covenant God, the people have to be faithful to him. They have to be covenant people, not just a nation state with a capital city, but God's chosen people with Jerusalem as the city of God where they worship in the temple and trace the promises of a king in David's line. In that stage of redemptive history, this is how God works. And so we look at the plan of redemption, the whole going back to Adam and Eve's era, to our own day and beyond into eternity. God has a plan of redemption, and this is one page out of that plan. At this stage in the history of God's plan of redemption, restoring Jerusalem was important. It would be there that God would keep his promises. It would be there that the Messiah would have his ministry to die on that cross and rise again. So rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem was important. Another lesson that we can learn here, though, is more directly about us in the sense that we are God's building project. We're his new covenant people. We're his building project. Look at this slide of 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to read this with you. I'll read it aloud. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then verse 9 says, That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so, in a sense... The rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, in a sense, prefigures what God's going to do with the church, his people. That he's building us. He's building us into his city, his Jerusalem. The foundation is Jesus Christ himself. What does Peter call Jesus in this passage? He calls him precious, chosen and precious. Jesus, the Messiah, God's son come in the flesh, is chosen and precious. Each of us is a living stone, and each of us, individually, and we collectively have purpose. We have purpose as a church. The Lord is building us for a distinct purpose. What is that? Verse 5, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. One reason we exist as a church is that God is building us as his people so that we could be worshipers, so that we can offer sacrifices, sacrifices of the lips, even as we've been doing this morning, worshiping him. Sacrifices of our lives, presenting our own bodies as living sacrifices to Him. And in verse 9, that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That wherever we go, we go to Warsaw and Ona Lake, we go to Toronto, we go to China, wherever we go in this world, that we are declaring the excellencies who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. When you go to your workplace, your neighborhood, Come next month, you kids will be back in school. Can you believe that? I hear some excited voices. Maybe one. Um, you Christian kids, when you're in your school, wherever you are, you're declaring the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We want to tell people about him and all these glorious attributes of him, his attributes of glory and grace. 
Until the Lord returns, we are his ongoing building project. We are being built, Peter says. We are being built into a spiritual house. The building of the church goes on. You know, that's true for the church universal, for the church all around the world, all through the ages. But there are particular applications to the local church. At Christ's covenant church, God's building us. And I think back, and I realize how over the years God has put his hand of grace on certain people's lives and he's moved them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun he loves. He's turned the lights on. And people have been converted and we've heard their testimonies as they've been baptized. And we've watched infant Christians grow into spiritual adolescence and eventually mature adults. And we see this. It's not overnight, but we can see God building individuals and building the church through saving people and maturing them, making them fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. And yet, friends, realize the church is not static, it's dynamic. And as time goes on, there are new people to our church. There are children being born. There are children growing up in this church who need the gospel. There's people who we encounter here in our community who need the gospel. And we continue to declare His excellencies and we continue to make disciples of Jesus Christ. The building project goes on. It goes on here and around the world. And friends, it's teamwork. It's teamwork. One of the dangers in American Christianity is spectatorship. We're used to watching concerts. We're used to watching sporting events. Even politics has become an entertainment sport. But the church is not a spectator sport. You don't sit in the chairs and say, the church should do this or the church should do that. Friends, we are the church. We're the church. The church isn't something separate from you if you're a Christian. We all are part of the church. And we all have a part of the wall to work on. We all are part of the team. Ephesians chapter 4 says this. Let me read verse 16 of Ephesians 4. It says, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As each part does its work. A couple nights ago, I was working on some digital photos, looking for particular photos for our family, and, and I came across this, this file of photos of the building project for the building we're now sitting in. For those of you newer to the church, uh, we moved into this building in 2005. And um, I'm looking at these photos, and it just brought back such good memories. As you can see, brother so-and-so laying stone, maybe these stones up here. And, and you can see someone else painting walls, and there are people sweeping floors. That was one of my jobs. People running wires, people blowing in insulation. Thank you. I have photos of a couple of you blowing in insulation here into this building. Other people, devoted prayer warriors, and a bunch of people who gave above and beyond. Did you know this building, when we moved in, the end of October 2005, we did not owe a single penny? This building was built debt-free. And you say, how did that happen? We didn't have any deep-pocketed people saying, here's a million dollars, go build a building. It didn't happen that way. 
for three or four years, depending on the family. There were a number of families in the church for three or four years said, we will double our giving for the next three years, for the next four years, double our giving. That meant no pizza night on Friday. That meant making do with the used car for another year or two. That meant not going to Disney World on vacation. Not that any of those things were wrong, but people made voluntary choices saying, we will choose to give up these things, legitimate enjoyments in life, so that we can double our giving for the next three or four years. And people, some of you are sitting here, some of you are newer to the church since that era, there were just normal people who said, we, we're part of the team. This is teamwork. And they gave financially, sacrificially, not just for one Sunday, for years. Sustained that for years. People who prayed, I remember sitting in this room before the carpet was laid. And some of you remember that. We were praying, Lord, give us money for carpet. And the money came in and we bought the carpet. And then we thought, we need to pray for money to lay the carpet. <laughs> and so some of you remember this. We sat in here one time in an evening on the rolls of carpet and prayed, Lord, please give the money so we can lay this carpet. And the next day the money was there. Remember that, some of you? But see, it was a matter of teamwork that everyone said, this is my part. I want to be part of this. I don't want to be a spectator. Uh, I want to be a player. I want to be part of the team. Now, when I talk about this building project, this building project, not the walls of Jerusalem, but this facility that we meet in, I'm just using that illustratively. The church is not a building. This, in fact, when I refer to this building, I usually put an apostrophe S. I call it the church's building. <laughs> the church is the people. This is the church's building. Um, so I don't want to emphasize physical buildings, but I want to use that as an illustration that the ministry we have as a church is a team effort. And just like the citizens of Jerusalem, everybody had a part. Everybody had a part to build that wall. A seemingly impossible task got done. And as we look ahead at the future of our church, I want to encourage you that you can live a life useful to the master. You can have a part. You do have a part. So, Nehemiah 3, my friends, is far from boring. It's a story of redemption of God's people in the Old Testament. He was doing amazing things and rebuilding Jerusalem, its walls. And he is doing amazing things with us. He is building his church. Each of us Christians is a living stone. We all have a part. What do you believe your part is? Have you been praying, Lord, move me. Help me to see what my part is. And you're praying, Lord, use me. I don't want to be a spectator. I want, I want to be a team member. I want to be, I want to be a player. And then when you realize that it might sacrifice, you might be sacrificing your time, your energy, your money to be a team player, say, Lord, strengthen me. Lord, strengthen me. Are you praying those things? We want to give you a way to respond, and we wrestled with how to do this. And so I'm going to put a link up here for you or ask the folks in the back to put a link up here for you. Um, on the church's website, christcovenant.org slash forward slash teamwork, that maybe you know an existing ministry, a ministry that's already functioning here at CCC, and you say, I, I'd love to be part of that, or at least love to hear more. Um, or maybe as you pray, Lord, move me, he's put something on your heart that we're not doing here. Uh, we believe in the priesthood of believers here at CCC, and he moves, not just in the elders, he moves in everybody. And he might be moving on your heart saying, you know what we could be doing. You know what we could be doing at CCC? Talk to us. 
what's the Spirit putting on your heart? Something maybe we haven't done yet or are not doing currently that you say, you know what, that would be wonderful ministry. Um, you can get on this link. It's in your bulletin if you aren't writing it down now. If you want to take a picture of the slide, you can. But I would encourage you to get on that link and tell us what's on your heart and that we want to come alongside you then and help see you know what your part of the wall is. Okay? Friends, we're not on a fool's errand. One day the building project will be complete. And what a glorious day that will be. Let me read to you from Revelation 21. I'm going to the end of the Bible here. It's not the last chapter, but it's the next to the last chapter. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. John the Apostle, by the Spirit, writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Listen carefully. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. Who is that, my friends? Who's the bride of Christ? It's us. The new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, prepared for her husband. When Jesus comes back, the work is going to be completed. It's going to be done. And he's going to come and make his dwelling with us. And he will be our God, and we will be his people. And on that day, there will be no more crying, no more tears, no more death, no more pain. For the old things have passed away. It'll be glorious. We're heading to that destiny. Until then, there's work to do. It's teamwork.